Good morning, New City. Good to be worshiping with you all today. Uh, we're in the midst of a sermon series called The Life of Jesus, where we are, we started this after Christmas, where we went through the birth of Jesus at Christmas, and then we're going to be continu- continuing on uh, somewhat chronologically through different stories that are recorded in the Gospels about his life. And I'll take us into Lent, and then we'll transition from sort of general life and ministry into the Passion and the Passion is considered the last week of Jesus' life. And even though it's only the last week of his life, it, it um, takes up more than half of the Gospel stories. And so we'll be in, in the Passion uh, once we get into Lent, which is surprisingly not just a few weeks away, not too far away. Well, this week I read an article in the Star Tribune about Cleet Keller who swam for the U.S. Olympic team in 2004 and in 2008. And his name isn't as recognizable as someone like a Michael Phelps or a Ryan Lochte, but he has one of the greatest swims I remember ever watching in the Olympics. It happened in the 2004 Olympics on the 800-meter free relay. And the 800-meter free relay is four swimmers, and they each swim 200 meters. And it's a really tough race. It's one of the hardest races because it's right on the edge of being an all-out sprint and being a distance event. And so you got to, the really good swimmers can almost sprint the entire way if you're in really good shape. Well, Keller, he wasn't necessarily the fastest swimmer coming into the relay, but the person who was the coach of the Olympic team knew that he was an exceptionally gutsy swimmer. And he often rose to the occasion when challenged. And so they decided to put him last in the anchor position, which is usually reserved for the fastest swimmer. Knowing that the U.S. was not supposed to win this relay, the Australians were supposed to win, and the greatest 200-meter freestyler really ever to have swum the 200-meter freestyle at that time, Ian Thorpe, would be anchoring the Australian relay. And they went in the water, and Cleek Keller put in this amazing swim and ended up touching out Ian Thorpe and winning the gold medal. It was sort of a, a superhuman swim. It was so much fun to watch. And that was all I really ever knew about Cleet Keller until this last week when I found out that he was a part of the insurrectionist mob that stormed the Capitol building a few weeks ago. And, and it's clear that it's him. He's 6'6", so he kind of stands out in the crowd. But beyond that, he was actually wearing his U.S. Olympic jacket, as if he wanted the world to know that a U.S. Olympic athlete could be here in the midst of this crowd so that we we could see him and know his story. And as I was reading this article, the question that kept coming into my head that was also really the basis for this argument or this article was, how did he get here? How did Cleet Keller, someone who won gold medals in the Olympics in both 2004 and 2008, end up in this mob that stormed the Capitol? And what emerges as you read his story is that he was a troubled individual. Fundamentally, He struggled to make this transition from being in the limelight where everybody that you're in a relationship with is basically working to meet your needs, to lift you up, to support you and help you succeed, to transition to this life of relative anonymity where he didn't matter and nobody cared what he was doing anymore. 
He also had substance abuse issues. And on top of that, he really hadn't put much energy or effort into preparing for what he was gonna do after he finished swimming. So he kind of bounced around jobs, never could land anywhere. And he ended up divorced, homeless at 6'6", living out of a small car for a season. And there was a four year stretch where he wasn't even allowed to see his children. Three kids. It was bad. And some people in his life says that he had kind of started to turn his life around, but despite whatever progress he was making, something happened. And he latched on to this political movement known as Stop the Steal, which culminated in him deciding to travel from Colorado to Washington, which then led to the, the storming of the Capitol. And now he's arrested, and he's facing 15 and a half years in prison. And this story about Cleet Keller has humanized the people in the mob. It doesn't mean that their behavior is justified, but it helps me see that they are people with stories. There's a woman who died. Her name was Ashley Babbitt. She owned a pool cleaning business. And like Keller, her personal life was falling apart. Apparently, in order to keep her business afloat, she had taken out a loan. You know what the interest rate on her loan was? 169%. So no wonder she felt desperate. She was enslaved to debt. Each person who stormed that capital has a story. When I read about Cleet Keller's story or Ashley Babbitt's story, I'm aware of the tremendous amount of heartache and shame and failure and pain mark their lives. It doesn't absolve them from responsibility for their actions. But we can see them as people who are unable to face adversity, hardship, persevere, and instead chose to, to latch on to this revolution that wanted to kind of shake the fist at people in power and say it's your fault they're filled with so much pain in the same way that you know many of us look at these capital riders and go what were they thinking what's wrong with them well, truth be told this is the way the romans would have looked at the israelites in the time of Jesus. Romans, they were the good people. They were the people in power. They were normal. They weren't a part of mobs. It was the Israelites who were a part of mobs. They were the people in pain. Just about every year, some revolutionary would be raised up and he would, he would lead a mob, an insurrectionist mob, against some symbol of Roman power, an army outpost or some other symbolic thing that represented power. And this is kind of what was going on. It was this cauldron of revolutionary activity. And the Israelites wanted an insurrection. They wanted somebody to be raised up to overthrow the Romans. They didn't trust these people in power and they wanted to get violent in order to start an insurrection. And I bring all this up because this is in the background 
of the baptism that John is doing. In our passage, John has led people out of the promised land, out of Israel, and then he's having them be baptized and re-enter the Jordan. And this had insurrectionist overtones. It implied a revolution was coming. They were reenacting a part of Israel's history. And that part is when the Israelites first took possession of the promised land. They entered from the east, coming through the Jordan River. And the very next thing that they did was they went to Jericho and overthrew Jericho. It was war. And God was giving them power to drive out the godless. And so when the people of Israel are going to get baptized by John, passing through the Jordan River, they're reenacting this scene. They're acting for God to come and to act and to do something similar to what he did before. And this act of repentance is a way of them preparing their hearts, saying that they are worthy for God's favor and for God's revolution to come. The Israelites, they're desperate people. I'm sure a lot of them had individual, personal stories of pain and loss that paralleled Cleet Keller's or Ashley Babbitt's. And the vast majority of them, as they are, when it says all of Israel goes out to get baptized by John, the vast majority of them then were anticipating that this is the spiritual act that they can do in order to get God to act, and that God's act was going to be to raise up a Messiah or a Savior who was going to lead a violent revolution. It's not how most of us think about baptism. When we hear the word baptism now, we think of babies. Maybe we think of an adult. And while repentance is a part of this story that Chris read for us, it's not the individual repentance we typically think about. It's the corporate repentance that Israel is doing together. And it's a way of them asking for God to act to bring this revolution. That's the clear symbolism that's happening when they're getting baptized in the Jordan River. And this means that when Jesus is being baptized, you see this weird inter- interchange with John where he's like, I don't want to baptize you. you to... And Jesus said, no, this is fitting for all righteousness. What Jesus said, this is what Israel has to do to initiate the revolution. They have to be baptized. And what Jesus is doing when he's getting baptized is he's saying, I'm binding myself to these people and to this request for revolution. Jesus is identifying with the Israelites their desire for revolution, and then he is saying, I'm going to be a part of this revolution. But Jesus, he has a different idea of what the revolution is going to look like. The Israelites thought it's going to mean this violent insurrection to overthrow Rome. Jesus understood it differently. He understood that the real liberation that God's people needed was not from the Romans, but from sin. And as this becomes clear throughout his ministry, he's not interested in pointing fingers at the Romans or at the greedy tax collectors or the licentious prostitutes, saying they're the problem with society. He starts pointing fingers at religious leaders and 
and starts talking about the condition of the human heart, as people become aware, it's not some problem with those people over there that we can then use violence to, to, to beat them down and overthrow them. It's clear how disappointed Israel is with him. And in the end, when Jesus ends up dying, it's like the Israel, it's not the Romans who kill him, it's the Israelites who kill him. And they kill him because he's not the kind of revolutionary leader that they wanted. Well, listen to Luke uh, 23, verses 13 to 25. This is as Jesus stands trial before Pilate. Pilate called together all the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who's inciting a rebellion, a revolution. I have examined him in your presence. I find no basis for your charges. They're like, He's not violent. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll, I'll punish him, but then I'm going to release him. The whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He'd been thrown in prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. He's the one leading a violent revolution. And when given the choice, the Israelites prefer Barabbas to Jesus. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown in prison. Sorry. Moving to me. Who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder. The one they asked for. And surrendered Jesus to their will. Jesus takes on this mantle of revolutionary. The kind of revolution that Jesus wants to lead the people of Israel into, and you and me, is one of love. Self-sacrificial love. When given the choice, that wasn't the kind of revolution the Israelites wanted. They wanted someone like Barabbas. Jesus takes on this mantle as a revolutionary, and he is killed for being a revolutionary. Ironically, because he wasn't violent. But this is a fulfillment of Jesus being killed for the sins of his people. He binds himself to Israel in baptism. He takes on the mantle as a revolutionary. And then he is crucified for the sins of his people, the rebellious, violent, power-hungry sins of his people, even though he didn't commit these sins himself. The revolution that Jesus is bringing is one of self-sacrificial love. And he's inviting all people to follow him and join him in this revolution, to let go of our attachments 
that lead to violence and to choose to live in the way of love. And this revolution is so different from what the Israelites wanted that when he's first trying to live in this, so after he gets baptized and then he starts his ministry, as he starts to live into this way, people start to see like, I think this is the guy. I think this is the Messiah. I think this is the Savior. But he keeps saying, no, no. Or if they say, yes, you are it, he says, well, okay, fine, but don't tell anyone. There's this weird thing called the Messianic secret. And it's because the expectations are just so wrong for what revolutionary looks like. The kind of revolution, the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And listen to a great example. It's in John 6, 15. This is after the feeding of 5,000. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. How many people do you know, if a crowd came and said, we want to make you king, would withdraw to a mountain to pray? And it's because the people wanted him to be a revolutionary in a violent way that he didn't. He's saying in his baptism, I'll, I'll take on this vocation of a revolutionary. I'll even die as your revolutionary leader. But I'm not leading the kind of revolution that you want me to lead. And the revolution that I'm inviting you into is much different. I'm inviting you to follow me, to take up your own cross and start sacrificially suffering for those around you out of love, even your enemies. And so then the question that necessarily comes to you and me, is this the revolution we want to be a part of? Do we want to follow this revolutionary? Or do we prefer sort of violent rebellion, using our power to get what we want and need? Blaming other people for our unhappiness and trying to punish them. This is where I go back to Cleet Keller and Ashley Babbitt. And I think about many of you. I think about myself. This is a deep, fundamental question. These two paths. When we want something and we're not getting it, we let go choose the path of love. We use our power to strive and, and even wrong others to get what we want. We often prefer the way of violence. This is why many of us use passive-aggressive techniques towards our spouses when they don't do what we want. Yell at customer service representatives if they, a package comes late. Shame our children. Works. Get them to comply. Resort to maybe a little gossip or politics in the workplace to help our careers advance. It's our default setting to use our power to get what we want. It's just the way the world works. And it's the same impulse that made it hard for Cleet Keller and Ashley Babbitt to accept personal responsibility for their rock bottom life experiences. Instead, they said, it's not, it's their fault. It's people in power, they've screwed me over. I'm going to go teach them a lesson. The path 
of self-sacrificial love that Jesus lays out for us, it's hard to follow. How did Jesus do it? How did he walk this path of the revolutionary that he wants us to follow that ultimately led to the cross? And the answer is right here in our passage. He knew that he was loved. In verse 17, And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the power that gave Jesus the strength to lead a revolution of love. And it's so easy to dismiss the significance of this, but it is life-changing. If we can hear God's voice speaking these words over us, then we will have the power to go the way of self-sacrificial love. This love is our deepest need, and when we can hear this voice within us, we have the capacity to face our crosses, to let go of our attachments, to be wronged and forgive others, to serve others, because we know who we are. We know we are God's child. And the gift that God gives to us is the Spirit within us who speaks these words to us over and over and over if we can slow down and listen. Listen to how Paul explains this dynamic in Romans 8. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father, that intimate word like daddy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we're children, then we're heirs. Good things for us. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share also with his glory. As we follow Jesus in our own baptism, commit ourselves to this revolutionary kingdom of love. God gives us the Spirit, and the same words that were spoken over Jesus are then spoken over us. You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. With you, I am well pleased. When if we're going to join Jesus in this revolution of love, we have to be able to hear this voice. When was the last time you heard these words? When you heard the voice of the Spirit speaking these words of love to you? I, uh, earlier this week, experienced some affirmation from somebody and this affirmation echoed these words of love, with you I am well pleased from my Father in heaven. When I feel affirmed, when I feel this, you are a son, you are loved, with you I am well pleased, with those words, everything feels okay. I feel seen, I feel known, like someone's noticing me, and I feel loved. 
Affirmation captures all of this. And so I'm wondering if I can give you all a a challenge for this week to echo God's words of love and affirmation to those around you. Join with the Spirit in this revolution of love and, and speak these words of love to others. Because I think this is fundamentally the thing that we all need to hear and know. This is what Cleet Keller needed. This is what Ashley Babbitt needed. They needed to know they are loved. And that they belong, their son, their daughter. And God is delighted in them, who they are. And we can participate in this by speaking these words to others, by affirming spouses, children, friends, co-workers. So maybe this week, pick a number, one or two or three, and try and affirm that many people a day. It's a simple practice, and maybe you won't want to bother with it. But it's pretty revolutionary to speak these words of love, to call out what is good, to tell a person you are pleased with them. It can transform our relationships, our communities, and even the world. Join me in prayer. God, would you help us to hear the voice of your Spirit speaking words of adoption and sonship and daughterhood? And then to go and to share these words with those around us, words of love and welcome and affirmation. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.